Well, um, we are in this vision and values series, which is just, again, a, an opportunity for us to, to kind of get back to what, what is the church about? What is the church sort of big C about universally? And then what is our local church uh, about? By looking just simply at what does the word say? What does the Bible tell us about the church, its purpose, its identity, and its function in the world? And we're looking at that because we need to continually be reminded of who we are and what we're to be about. We're also looking at that as we consider sending out some to Rogers Park in the coming months to see a new local congregation be established. And our desire is not to just see a new congregation be established and to look like this, but to see that uh, that whole effort sort of bleed into all of us, to see a bit of a revitalization in all of us. That the church would be the, as God intended to be, the, the, just a, a light in a dark place, that the world would see Christ when they look upon His people. So again, we started with our fundamental priorities, which is, the, it's a Trinitarian priority. We're, we exist for the glory of God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and for the mission of the Holy Spirit. It's about God and not about us. We are a part of what God is doing. This is God's work, the church. And we, we looked at that and then we, we talked about how the church that God has assembled is a church of the nations. That, that through Christ, God is drawing all things back under his headship. And that the church is the first fruit of that. And that it's global. Uh, and to the extent that it can be in local context, the church ought to reflect that diversity. Because again, we're all called as one in Christ. So starting with those two uh, two things, we're going to now roll into a third vision value. It's really a value uh, with hopefully a vision attached to it. And that is that what does the church then look like when we gather together? What is body life all about in this thing that God has put together for his glory in the world? And we're going to talk today about the idea of being a church that lives in community. Looking at the passage that Libby just read to us from Acts chapter 2, where we see what, what happened when, when after Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes upon this diverse group of people and unites them together as one in Christ, what did they start to do? Very much they were living together in the community, the new community that God was creating through the gospel. So we're going to look at that together in more detail and, and try to flesh out just some, some continued application for us. Uh, as the church. So even though Libby just read it, I'm going to read it again because this is such a powerful picture. So if you're there, I hope you stayed there in Acts chapter 2. Again, it's on page 9, 10, 9, 11 if you're using the Pew Bible. Look again and, and, and consider the remarkable nature of what you're hearing about here uh, as the church is gathering together and what it is that they are doing. Acts chapter 2, again, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship to breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Oh, if we could, if we could say that continually is the picture of the church. Right? This is what the church looks like. This is what God intends the church to look like. It's so exciting to see this. 
And again, what's interesting and important to note is that this passage is connected to last week's in, in, in just understanding who this group of people were. The, 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 there's the last, last week we talked about the, the unity of a diverse church. And we got that from the beginning of this chapter. Acts chapter 2, again, the, the day of Pentecost comes upon the church. The Holy Spirit is poured out onto the apostles and they begin to preach the gospel. And those who were gathered in Jerusalem that day from many nations, the dispersed Jews that, that had been all over the planet really, were gathered back together again for that occasion and they were hearing the Gospel in their own languages amazingly, supernaturally, spoken by a bunch of Galileans. right? And, and we're told there that as God did that, they, Peter gets up and he preaches a sermon, he preaches the Gospel, they say, what shall we do? And he says, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they did. Many thousands came to Christ that day and the church was formed. The church was formed. And we roll right into what we just read. This is what they did. This is what that diverse group of people now united together in Christ looked like. And the point of that is to simply say this, that God was building a new community. God is building a new community. And it's a key point for us to understand about what the church is. It's a new community that God is drawing together from all over the world. Luke wants to make clear, Luke's the one who wrote this, by the way. Luke was the author of, of Acts. He wants to make clear the idea that the preaching of the Gospel and the growth of the church did not just involve a bunch of individuals who individually came to faith and individually lived out their faith. He wants us to understand that no, these individuals were called into something far bigger than just their individual selves. They were drawn into community. They were drawn into a body. The body of Christ. This was indeed a corporate work. And that's a good reminder for us. Because we live in a society, Western society, is very individualistic. Right? We think, we can so easily think about our faith as sort of just being our own. And our Christianity is sort of our own. That it's, a, it's sort of a, this private thing between me and God. And, and if we look through the scriptures and we see like, that there's, there's not, there's, there's nothing addressed to believers in the scriptures that would, that would support that. That would encourage them to just sort of think of themselves as just sort of isolated individual Christians doing their own thing, just me and Jesus. The picture here is always one of, no, being drawn together into a family, into a community, into the church. God's work is corporate, not just individual. So we're not saved just individually. Do you understand that? You weren't just saved individually. You were saved individually, but not to stay individual. You were drawn into the body, right? And this passage again gives us a great model for the priorities of the body as we live out this unified witness of the gospel in our community together. So let's, let's kind of look at some of these things just sort of briefly and, and, and understand what, what's going on here, what it means, and why it's, it really is radical what, what God was beginning to form here. Again, verse 42, we see that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. There was breaking of bread. And there was prayer. So four things that Luke highlights here as sort of the main things that the church body 
devoted themselves to. And this word devoted is a word that means to persist in. It, it, it means that they were continuing to do something with an intense effort. This wasn't just something that, that happened once here. This isn't just something that even happened sort of on Sundays only. The idea here is that this, this was the pattern of their lives continually, intensely as God's people. And they're listed here in two pairs. There's the teaching and the fellowship, and then there's the breaking of bread and prayer. And I think as you look at that in the original language, you, you get the idea that, that really the first two are the primary ones, and the second two are maybe descriptive of them. So, so the idea here is that they, they were focused on the teaching and on fellowship, and that fellowship included then breaking bread and praying together. All right, But the teaching and the fellowship are the primary emphases here of these verses. So let's talk about what that means. They persisted in the teaching of the apostles. Again, persisted in, right? So this idea of day by day, we've got this, this group of people who are giving themselves together to persisting in the things that they had been taught. Now, how were they gathering together? Well, we're told early on in the Scripture that they began to gather on the first day of the week. That's why we gather together on the first day of the week. So you certainly get this idea that, that on a Sunday morning, the church is gathering together and they're, they're being instructed. But here we see that that instruction isn't just staying in Sunday. Day by day, we're told, they're devoting themselves to the things that they had been taught. We see that there's many times and many locations throughout the week in which they're doing that. So we're going to come back to that in just a minute and sort of flesh out how, how were they continuing to do that. But let's, let's first talk about what kind of teaching were they devoted to? What was the teaching that they were getting as the church? Well, one of the things that we can do to, to answer that question is just look back. Beginning of Acts chapter 2, again, we see the day of Pentecost comes. And then what happens? Peter gets up and Peter begins to teach them. Look at verse 14 of chapter 2. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and he addressed them. So I'm not going to read through the whole thing here, but, but the idea here is that we see a big part of the teaching that they were receiving is much like we do today. Elders getting up and proclaiming the Word of God. And if we look through what the content of his sermon is, we see that there's two main ideas about what he's doing. The first one is that he's preaching them the Gospel. A big emphasis of what he's saying to them here is that this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus did. He died for us. He was resurrected on the third day. He's explaining to them the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So the content of his preaching is very much Gospel-centered preaching. And how is he supporting that Gospel? He's doing that by proclaiming the whole counsel of Scripture. He's referencing the Bible. If we look in verse 14, we see, or excuse me, in verse 16, we see that he's beginning to expound on the book of Joel. He quotes from Joel. And then a little bit further down in verse 25, he begins to quote from David in the Psalms. So he's explaining God's word, and the explanation of the word and the support of the word is there to help him proclaim who Jesus is, what Jesus has accomplished, and who we are in Christ, what we ought to do being confronted with who Jesus is and what He's done. It's Gospel-centered preaching. It's preaching that takes into account the whole counsel of Scripture. 
So all that to say, a, a big focus of the, of the teaching that the church was being devoted to was the preaching of the apostles. They were doing what we do. They were, they were, do, they were listening to sermons quite a bit. Now I bring that up because I, I think it's an important thing to, to say that that's a priority and a, a, a priority of the early church. Uh, we'll see that that's not the only kind of teaching, but it was a fundamental part of the teaching that they received. And, and the reason I bring that up is because there's a... You, you might hear this, uh, but I certainly hear it in academic circles and theological circles, sort of this idea that, well, preaching wasn't really a part of the, of the early church. That that was something that, that came about more sort of after the Reformation and, and as, the, as, the, as the Protestant church began to be more organized, it was, you know, sometimes even it's stated negatively, like that's the way that, you know, the pastors sort of justified their, their jobs, was to sort of turn all the teaching onto themselves and, and make sermons a big part of the way the church functions. That's not true. I mean, it is true that Reformation did preach, but that's not why they were doing it. The reason they were doing it is because that's the example we have from Scripture. The preaching of the Word is an important part of the, of the discipleship and the ministry of the church because, as we see here, in, the, in, the, in this example in Acts chapter 2, look, at, look down at, at what he says here. Look at verse, uh, I'm going to read uh, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he quotes David and he, 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 he gives biblical uh, foundation and support for this gospel that he's preaching. And then notice what, what again happens. Look down at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter's response is to repent and believe in the gospel, right? So what's happened there? There's power. There's, there's spiritual power that's coming about through the preaching of the gospel. And Paul affirms that, right? In, in, in Romans, he talks about the, the power of the gospel for salvation. He talks in chapter 10 about the preaching of that gospel. It's, the, it's that we, we come to faith by hearing the Word and responding to what we've heard. Faith comes by hearing. So there's power. The, the way that the Spirit gives power to the Gospel is through the proclamation of it to His people. That's why preaching is an important part of what we do. We believe that. We, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't claim to be inspired, but I do claim to have the Holy Spirit. And I do believe that when, when anyone is up here to proclaim the Word of God, that, that the Spirit of God supernaturally attends that preaching and brings it with power on the congregation. That's a big part of what they were devoted to, to hearing God's Word through the preaching of the apostles. So that was happening, we know, on at least on Sunday. But again, it says here that they were devoted to that day by day, throughout the week. How were they devoted to it throughout the week? Look at verse 46 again. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. 
So not only were they gathering together in the temple on a Sunday morning for church, but we see this picture that they were then gathering together throughout the week to discuss the things that they had been taught, to, to hash those things out with one another. This idea that they were, they were continually thinking about and discussing together and sharpening and encouraging and equipping each other with the things that they had received, the instruction that they had been given. So they weren't just doing what we call church, but they were being the church throughout the week in the way that they related to one another and they intentionally spent time to one together, with one another. This, this idea of being devoted to is, is applied to this idea too. They were persisting in the teaching that took place in many times, in many locations throughout the week as they were being together intentionally. What did that look like? Well, this is this idea of fellowship. They persisted in fellowship, right? They were devoted to not only the teaching, but also fellowship. What is fellowship? We use that word a lot. In fact, we have a whole room in our church named after fellowship. We have a fellowship hall, right? What is fellowship? We get this idea of, of you know, sort of interacting with one another, spending time to one, with one another. Many of you probably know the Greek word uh, that's translated as fellowship is this word koinonia. We use that word from time to time as well. But what does it mean? The, the definition of koinonia is this. It, it, it's, it's really a, a beautiful picture. It's to say that there is, there is relationship that's being shared because of something that's bigger than the relationship itself. So koinonia or fellowship is a relationship that's being shared that's centered around, that's rooted in something that's bigger than the relationship itself. Yeah, that's, that's kind of a strange thing to try to understand until you understand it in the context of the church. This idea of koinonia or fellowship wasn't a, a church word. It was a contextual word in society. Any gathering could be called a koinonia, especially when it had some kind of you know, purpose that it was gathered around. But in the church, that, that purpose is, is clearly identified now as Christ. That your fellowship, that your, your being together, what you're devoted to is relationship that's, that's, that's rooted in something bigger than you. And that something bigger than you is Jesus. It's this common faith that we have in a common Savior. And they were devoted then to having relationships with one another, which again is remarkable because thousands of people are coming to Christ many of whom probably don't even speak the same languages at this point still, and yet they've got this bond. They've got this deep relationship because it goes beyond sort of who they are in and of themselves or what they have in common in and of themselves. They've got Jesus. And they're devoted to that fellowship. That fellowship, that, that sharing together, could simply refer to the material blessings that they shared with one another. We see that in verses 44 and 45. We're told they had everything in common, which is koina. But we'll come back to that. I think, I think it's important to note, though, that the sharing was clearly a practical expression of this new relationship experienced together, again, through the common faith they had in a common Savior, through Jesus. This relationship brought about a certain level of responsibility to one another. We, if we share Christ together, then we share everything together. We have a responsibility. There's a bond here that, that goes far and beyond anything we've ever known or experienced with one another. They had that, in faith, that common faith. One commentator put it like this. 
He says it may be best, therefore, to give koinonia its widest interpretation in verse 42, including within its scope contributions, table fellowship, the general friendship, the unity which characterized the community. In other words, he's saying they were tight. They weren't just gathering together because they all sort of like, you know, said, well, that's my temple. I'll just go to my temple on Sunday. They were tight. They, they were, they were loving one another. They were brothers and sisters. They saw themselves as having that deep unity. And that's highlighted at the end of verse 42. Again, how was that teaching and fellowship expressed? By the breaking of bread and prayers. Breaking of bread and prayer. What does the breaking of bread represent there? I think it represents this table. There's no doubt that it represents communion. They were commanded to do that by Jesus. So they would have been doing that regularly together as a congregation. But we get a sense in this this full passage that it included more than just the communion that they shared together at church. That it was truly eating together. Just regularly sharing meals together. We get this picture that they were not just doing that in church, but in their homes. They were were constantly just having meals. In fact, this idea of breaking bread being linked to the communion table isn't something that we actually see. We don't see that, that terminology, breaking bread, associated with communion until the second century. So I'm not sure that's what Luke has in mind. I think he's thinking more about just the way that they were eating together regularly. And there was an intimacy involved in that. Eating together in the first century context was, was deeply intimate, probably more so than we give credit to. Remember when, when the Pharisees were, um, they were, they were sort of harping on Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why? Because there was, there was a, there was an intimacy involved. There was something more than just having a meal together. It was fellowship. It was koinonia. And so this is fleshed out in the way that they were spending their time together. They were eating together. And these meals were worshipful. The intimacy of their meals was worshipful. We see that because they were praying with one another. There was likely teaching going on, the rehashing of what they'd been learning, and they were, they were praying with one another. Not just, not just again, to, to be together as friends, but with a desire to say, how can I minister to you? How can I bless you? How do we fellowship around our common unity in Christ and our mutual dependence upon Him? Let's pray for one another. Verse 46 again. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all of the people. There was a common thread of church life, in other words, that permeated their week. Not just their Sunday morning, but their week. They valued that together. And then we see this beautiful picture in verse 44 again about how they shared all things in common. All who believed were together and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This, this to me is an indication of how they were applying what they were learning They were applying what they were learning. They were giving to each other, in other words, as a reflection of the gospel that they were learning and receiving. This was a picture for them of, look, if Jesus gave all to us and supplied our every need, 
then as a reflection of that, we need to give to one another and supply every need. That's what the Gospel represents. That's what Jesus has done for us. They were doing this voluntarily. They were selling off their own things. It doesn't say they were commanded to do that. They just saw it as a, as a clear outflow of what Jesus had done for them. Remember when I was in high school, I was in a, a youth group and, and my youth leader uh, taught through this passage one time and he used this phrase that this was, um, he called this Christian communism. Right? This idea that they were selling all their stuff and they were sort of collectively putting it all in one pot and then distributing it to each one as anyone had need. Um, he says sort of like the first signs of communism. And I, and I think he's totally wrong on that. Right? Here's why. Because, because communism isn't voluntary. <laughs> right? Communism is you will sell your stuff and give it all, right? That, that's not what was, there was the, what was compelling them wasn't some rule. What was compelling them was the love of Christ. They were voluntarily giving to one another to meet each other's needs. And it's not necessarily that they were, they, they were just selling off everything. There's, we get the idea that there were things that were, it's not like they were um, not maintaining stuff, like possession of things. But even when they maintained the possession of something, they still they were willing to share it for the benefit of the body, for the benefit of one another. And I think another way to say that is they really saw themselves as family. Isn't that what you do for family? Parents, isn't that what you do for your kids, right? Like what, what's mine is yours. It, it, it blesses me to bless you, to use these things, to have these things, to, 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 to be uh, every need met. If I can supply that for you, I want to supply that for you because I love you. You're my family. Where else does that happen outside of family? So that's what they were. They, they were seeing themselves as brothers and sisters, really, truly family members of one another in the household of God. That's a beautiful thing. Not only is it a beautiful thing in that it gives testimony of the, of the freedom that we have in Christ to one another, but it, it clearly gives a, a testimony to the world. That is unusual behavior, right? Have you ever been blessed by somebody in the body? This has happened to my family many, many times. You're blessed by somebody in the body just sharing with you something that they, they know will meet a need. And, and, and have somebody from outside the church maybe ask you, how'd that need get met? Or where'd you get that? Or how'd, how'd that come about? And you're able to say, somebody in our church just blessed us with this. Every time I've had the opportunity to do that, I, I think every single time I've heard the same response. It was either, wow, that's some kind of church you're a part of. Or if I don't have to point them there, because I'll point him, them there next, they'll go straight there themselves. That's a, that's a beautiful thing, your religion. And I'll say, yeah, it's, it's because of Jesus. That's what Jesus is like. So we get this picture of a church that is devoted to the teaching, that is devoted to the fellowship, the outward change uh, reflected by what inwardly they've received from the Lord Jesus Christ. They're, care, they're caring for one another. And again, there was this effect then. The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
the Lord was adding to the number daily those who were being saved. This community was attractive to the world. It was radical. And it was attractive to the world. Why? Think about this. I mean, if, if the church is living out what Christ has done for us and, and what He's given to us in the way that we love and care for one another, we're speaking to the longing of every human heart. What is it that compelled you to put your faith in Jesus? Was it not a recognition that, that in, in Christ He's meeting the longings of my heart? I was, I was made to, to, to know and worship something greater than myself. I was made for relationship and community. And, and for many of us, we came to faith having none of that. Having a lot of brokenness in our lives with, with our relationships and, and, and no sense of community and a, a general, general feeling of being purposeless and alone. Many of us. And yet in the Gospel, we not only see a God who sends His Son for us, but we see a church that He's formed and He's calling us into where all of a sudden, we've got family. Every longing of my heart. Unity, fellowship, love. Peace, and most importantly, a connection to a connection to my Creator through Jesus is fulfilled, and the and the, and the world around them took notice. An incredible evangelism was happening. Incredible evangelism, and I have to think a big part of that was just simply people looking at what was going on and saying, "I want to be a part of that." The Lord was adding to their number daily. People were getting saved. Now here's the thing. Luke doesn't hide the weakness of the church in Acts. This isn't just a Pollyanna view of of the church without talking about its faults. We don't have to read a whole lot further to see that in Acts chapter 5, for example, Ananias and Sapphira, we see some people being selfish with their goods and, and lying to the church and lying ultimately to God. Right? We get a little further into Acts chapter 6, and we see, you know, some of the, the division between the Greeks and the Jews, you know, the Hellenistic Jews and the, and the, the sort of purebred, if you will. There's problems in the church, no doubt. And Luke doesn't shy away from that. But he implies that the church in Jerusalem was a model still of what could happen. Of what could happen when people were bound together by a belief in the gospel. That, that what we see here in verses 42 to 47 of chapter through, of, of chapter two is, is, is an understanding of the implications of what the gospel can truly produce in a people who keep their eyes fixed on Christ and are desiring to reflect Him to one another and to the world. This church existed in community for that purpose of reflecting God's glory to themselves and to the world. You want to be a part of a church like that? We all do, right? So the question is, how much of this can we, should we grab onto today? And the answer to that question is, well, pretty much all of it. The same Gospel has come to us. The same Lord, the same Spirit, the same Word doing its thing amongst God's people. We should be able to grab onto pretty much all of this. And the only reason I say pretty much all of this is because I recognize that they had one thing that we don't have. They had the apostles. 
And the apostles were there, we're told, sort of performing signs and miracles and, and things in their midst. We don't have the apostles doing that today in our midst. We have the fullness of God's Word, right? But everything that we see here should be practically realized in the body of Christ at all times when we keep our eyes fixed on Christ. So I want to give you just a couple of, of practical encouragements or ways that we can, we can see this continually fleshed out. How can we be devoted to these same things? Just a couple of practical things, and then we'll, we'll come around the table and be reminded of the power that sustains it. The first one is this. If we see that the church was gathering together regularly throughout the week, that they were, they, they were in one another's homes, that they were breaking bread together, that they were devoted to the teaching, they were devoted to prayer, then we have to ask ourselves, are we doing the same things? In other words, are we seeing ourselves as just sort of Sunday morning only Christians who gather together once a week, or do we see ourselves as a true body of Christ, a family of believers who strive for life together, truly living in community? One of the ways that we've, we've tried to, to foster that in the church is we developed community groups uh, several years ago. And, and you know, I think we sort of launched that at the time that I originally taught through this about seven years ago. And we did that with this sort of you know, plea like this is... The idea of a community group is to do, is to see this happening. That you're gathering together in the homes. That they, and that's what our community groups were beginning to do. They were, they were breaking bread together. They were eating together. They were praying together. They were talking about what they had been learning in church together. They were, they were knowing one another and being known by one another so they could apply these things throughout the week. And I want to continually encourage that. Our community groups are still in existence. Uh, I don't know how many of us at this point uh, are involved in a community group. But I would say, if you're looking for the ways for this kind of ministry to be fleshed out in your life, how do you have this kind of body life? I would highly encourage a community group. Because again, that's what they're doing. This is exactly what they're doing. And there are other opportunities for that to happen. I know some of you can't commit to a week, the weekly involvement in a community group. But there are, there are Bible studies that are going on that are trying to do much the same thing. There are some of you that are, are putting together, like, like we've had a lot of young moms getting together regularly throughout the week and, and going to the park together and studying the Word together and praying together. And all of those kinds of things are just beautiful ways to flesh out. You have to be intentional about them. You have to say, I, I desire this kind of body life. And I just want to simply say this, if you're, if you're a Sunday morning only in your involvement in the body, you're probably not getting it. You're probably not getting it. So I just want to encourage, get involved in a community group. Or, or if you can't do that, look for ways to either connect with others who are gathering together in other venues or other, other you know, times and places, or invite people over. That's the second thing here. They were eating together, right? Do, do you, do you just invite people over and, and say, come eat with us? And when you eat together, are you, are you just talking about, you know, the, the Cubs games or are you like seeking to say, look, we'll, we've got you in our home. Can you share it? How can we pray for you? How, how can I care for you? Hey, let's, were you there on Sunday? We, we, we learned this from God's word. How, how have you been applying that? Here's how we've been applying that. Just look for opportunities. Lunches throughout the week, dinners, you know, special occasions, 
wing nights, whatever, guys, Monday night football. We just look for opportunities to be in each other's lives and to be intentional about those things. The other thing I want to offer up is, is along that same line, is just being, being faithful to be praying together. To take advantage of times to pray together. So you can do that in those group settings. You can do those in a Bible study. But, you know, we've, we, we just announced this morning we're doing another prayer walk in a couple of weeks. Um, we want to do that over the summer while the weather's good or we can get out and just be praying for our community together and, and be praying for one another. And uh, If you look at Acts chapter 4, I won't flip there now, but I, I'd encourage you to flip there later. A- after we see this kind of gathering in the church, we see that, that the church was praying together for boldness. They were recognizing that the community that they were in was in deep need of Christ. And so they were praying for the boldness together to be able to go out and to share the love of Jesus with their neighbors, to see their city transformed. We, we, we ought to be doing the same things. And so when we organize those kinds of things, come, be a part of that. Recognize that part of our fellowship is to pray together. It's a reflection of what God is putting together in us. I also want to encourage just playing together. Every time we get together, it doesn't have to be a, a Bible study. It doesn't have to be a community group setting. But, but even just opportunities to just ask somebody to come along with you and just do life with you. Go throw a ball at the park or, or you know, I, I got to work on my car. Why don't you come help me work on my car? And, 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 and not with the intention that you're just going to ask them to do all the grunt work for you, right? But with the intention that you're, you just want to spend time with them. Or maybe you're a, you're a, you know you're more skilled at certain things, and you know that there are young, maybe younger men or younger women in the congregation who don't have those skills, and you just say, "Let me teach you, and let's do life together." And while we're turning a wrench, or while we're baking a brownie, or whatever it is that we're doing together, let's encourage one another. One of the great, um, one of the great joys uh, for me as a as a parent is to see other people doing that with my kids. I love that. Yeah, I remember Dave Shire used to come and knock on my door on Saturday mornings all the time, and 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 you know I'd open the door and he'd say, "Is my assistant here?" He was talking about my son, you know. He would just take him out and and go bang on something with a hammer, you know, and and teaching him to do stuff that I can't teach him how to do, right? But 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 again, just to spend time with and to and just to mold and to shape and to say, you know, let me let me help form you as a as a young man. Those are beautiful ways that we in the body can be. Just investing in one another. I mentioned this uh, a couple years ago during the election, and uh, it, it, it's funny. I, I, I was talking about Hillary Clinton, um, how she said one time, "It takes a village to raise a child." And I think, man, as a church, we ought to we ought to latch onto that and say that is that is good counsel. That's good counsel. Because that's actually biblical counsel for the church. It takes the village, it takes the body to raise up and to equip and to build one another. So keep that in mind. And the last thing I want to just encourage is, is, is again, uh, the, the generosity and the giving. Um, I won't beat that horse too much. I said some things about it already. But again, just the, the beautiful testimony that is when you can sense that, you know what, I'm known Giving, giving and being generous to one another happens when we're known. When needs are known. 
people don't experience that generosity when they don't when people don't know their need, right? So to to be generous is, means that we we have to be a community that knows one another well, that that knows how to meet those needs, that that knows what we're we're lacking and struggling with. And again, not only is it a beautiful opportunity to express, look, I we know you, you're part of the family. We want to share with you as Jesus has shared with us. But again, it's such a beautiful testimony to the world when they can see, wow, that doesn't happen in in my workplace. That doesn't happen in my school. That doesn't happen with my neighbors. That's unique. That's what is that? And we can say it's it's the, it's a reflection of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It's beautiful. It's evangelizing. So our purpose as a church is to be a reflection of the Gospel. And a reflection of the Gospel comes with the body life, with the unity in Christ so that we can be an encouragement of Christ to one another and to the non-believers around us. This glorifies God. And it appeals to culture. You know, you, you know I'm going to close with this. You know what? I, I, this is a... Um, Encouragement a former pastor of mine gave me one time, and I, I, I've, I've never forgotten this. I want to, I want to remind you, you of this. I've shared this with you before. When we stand as the pillar of truth in the world, which is a purpose of the church, they should be able to look at us and see the truth of who God is, the truth of the gospel. They don't just need to hear truth. They need to hear truth. But they don't just need to hear truth. They need to, to see why the truth is so good. Right? In fact, they don't, they don't always want to hear truth, but they'll see it if they recognize why it's good. And so this is a way for us to show the world the goodness of the truth of the gospel.